0: And we'll read through verse 11 today, okay? Let's just read it first, and then we'll, as usual, go back through it. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But Let patience have its perfect worth, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if he lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. But let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it that it withers the grass its flowers falls its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes so the rich man also will fade in his pursuits so first we get his name james a bondservant of god of the lord jesus christ and the word for bondservant here is a greek word doulos uh, actually is where we get the word doula from because my wife had a doula when she gave birth not too long ago and a doula was a servant there. she was there to serve her and do whatever was needed that, that was Susan's attitude when she was there whatever you need me for to make you feel comfortable to help out I'm here to help you and the word doulos basically means that you're under someone else's complete control that's what it means it's almost as if you're a slave now when a slave has a master He's under his complete control. If he tries to rebel against the master, what does the master do? He whips him back into shape. So he's under his complete control whether he likes it or not. Now this doulos, a little bit different than that. This doulos has submitted his will to the master. And under his complete control willfully, not by force. God doesn't force anyone to be under his control. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. This will give you a a good picture of what it's like to be a doulos. Romans chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 13. This will give you a good picture of this here. In verse 13, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. But do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slaves to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So the Bible says that your body is an instrument to be presented. You present your instrument, your body, to be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. So an instrument like if you play a piano. Is the piano evil or good in itself? No, it's amoral. It has no good or evil quality to it. But if you play some kind of garb music on that has really bad lyrics, then you're using that instrument, the piano, for unrighteousness. If you use it to play hymns or godly music, something that glorifies God, you're using that instrument for righteousness. The same thing with your body. Your body, which God has given you, can be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. But you must present it to do that. Now, the presenting comes from you. That's your free will. You're doing the presenting. And it says in verse 16, this defines what slavery is here. Isn't something you're born into, isn't something you're forced to do, this is a willful slavery. Let me read verse 16 again. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves... You're not for it. You're presenting yourselves. You're not forced to do it. Slaves to obey. You are that one slave to whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death. I'm obviously talking about spiritual death here because that's what it says in the last part here. Or of obedience leading to righteousness. Okay? That's what it is to be a slave to Jesus Christ. A willful slave. Presenting your body every day to be a vessel of righteousness. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what James was. Now, notice in James 1.1, he didn't say, I am the brother of Jesus. That'd be kind of prideful of him. What do you say? I'm a bondservant of Jesus. You know, if, if one of your brothers became famous, uh, you might be tempted to say, well, that's my brother. You know, but to say, I'm a servant of him. He said, present yourself in humility. And that's what James was doing. He was a humble man. As we read last week, he was a very righteous man. So the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. Now we talked about this last week. Twelve tribes are who? Who does it represent there? Anyone remember? The twelve tribes of Israel. Now Israel is another name for who? For Jacob. God gave Jacob the name Israel after he wrestled with him. Okay, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel because he was a changed man. So the twelve tribes are Israel are. Jacob's sons and everyone who comes from them So we have the seven tribes of uh, John here Whatever comes from you, we can call the seven tribes of John Okay, so his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, his great-great-great-grandchildren That's the tribes of John, the seven tribes There's seven children, those are the tribes Jacob had twelve children, those are the tribes of Jacob or Israel Okay, scattered abroad now Remember what we talked about last week These are those who are not living in Jerusalem Not living in Israel, but they're Jewish people who are scattered abroad throughout the the nations, either because of Stephen's martyrdom, or just because they were scattered abroad, period, from the diaspora. On the day of Pentecost, there was many different Jews from many different nations. Remember, they spoke in their languages. So these are the ones who we're talking about who are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Really, the word when here should probably be Whenever. Because we should assume we're going to have trials. We should assume, and the word trials there can also mean temptations. We should assume we're going to have temptations. It's the same Greek word there in trial is used for Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. He was tempted to sin. So it can mean temptation to sin, it can mean a trial or a tribulation. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says this. This is Paul speaking here. He talks about in verses 10 and 11 his afflictions and suffering, his persevering, and all of the places he endured persecution. And then in verse 12 he says this to encourage the saints, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we must ask ourselves, if we aren't suffering some kind of persecution, some kind of trouble from the world, are we living godly in Christ Jesus, because Paul makes it clear all who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution that doesn 't necessarily mean physical persecution but some kind of trouble from the world showing that you 're different from them. they dislike you because darkness and light have nothing in common if you 're living in a light, you have nothing in common with the darkness in Matthew chapter five, verse eleven, we can read the word to the Lord Jesus to encourage his his uh, disciples, of what they're going to suffer in the future. He says in Matthew 5, verse 11, he says, um, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you that's what James is saying here, count it all joy not saying be joyful about what is happening to you but be joyful in the midst of what is happening to you you don't have to like being persecuted for me and John being cussed at or spit upon or pushed we don't have to like those things but we need to be joyful in the midst of that because we know that we have greater rewards in heaven we have a king of kings and lord of lords who loves us and cares for us and died for us on the cross so there will be temptations, there will be trials uh, when it comes to living out our faith. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, there will be temptations, there will be trials. And temptations come from different areas. It can be temptation to sin. It can be temptation to, uh, whether it's a sin like uh, stealing or lying. You're tempted to lie. Like, for example, children, I mean, if, if you do something wrong and your parents find out about it, and you don't want to be spanked or get in trouble for it they come to you and ask you what happened you think well I'm the only one who knows what I did so I'll just tell a lie that's temptation your job is to tell the truth not to give in to that temptation that's temptation and you will receive the temptation quite often because you know there's disciplinary action but know this as I tell my children I'm sure it's the same with your parents if you lie you will be found out. And then there will be worse disciplinary action for it. It's always better to tell the truth. And guess what? One lie, until you finally put a stop at leads to another lie, and another lie, and another lie, and another lie, and just big, 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 all this sin. Because you gave into that first temptation. That's why you don't give into it. You submit your, you, as James says in James chapter uh, to 4, verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But notice the first thing there. Submit to God. You try to resist the devil in your own power, it ain't going to work. You submit to the Holy Spirit. Submit to God first, and He will give you the strength to overcome. So consider it all joy whenever you fall into various trials or temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now let me just clarify some words here. Testing here uh, basically means determining genuineness. Determining genuineness. And it has this, uh, this way of... We talked about metals before. You put gold to the fire. The gold stays the same. It actually becomes purified. You lose no value in the gold. But what does it separate itself from when the gold gets put in the fire? Something called alloy. Metals that don't belong in there. Alloys when two metals are put together that shouldn't be put together. So you're, you're burning out the impurities. So when this determining of genuineness of your faith comes... It's burning away the impurity if you submit to it. And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. It says this in verse 11. Now, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Now this chastening is not always talking about God just punishing you for doing something wrong. This is a purifying chastening. Okay? And it never seems uh, pleasurable at the present time when you're going through it is isn't pleasurable to be refined and changed and molded and made. Nevertheless, afterward, if you go through it the way you should, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you come through trials, you come through this determining of genuineness, where it tests you, you'll come out the other side more pure. That's the whole point of it. Pure. And the testing of your faith, making your faith more pure, it produces... Patience. Now, the word patience here, it's not like uh, the patience we usually think of, where you're enduring something uh, without being anxious, or where where parents have to be patient with their children. It's not that kind of patience, or or like you see in the the fruits of the Spirit. Patience is one of those. But this isn't the same. It's talking about endurance here or perseverance. That's what the purifying of your faith produces. Endurance. The more you don't submit to sin, the more you don't submit to these temptations, the more you submit to God, the better chance you have of enduring to the end. The better chance you have of persevering to the end. That's what the whole point is. Because if you don't persevere, what happens? If you don't persevere to the end, what will happen? You will go to hell. So, these trials are guaranteed if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, which is a requirement for being saved in the end. And when you live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll get trials and temptations and testing the determining genuineness of your faith. And that produces what is needed perseverance, endurance, lasting until the end. You can picture a, uh, someone who's training for a marathon. Does anyone know how long a marathon is? A marathon. It's 26 miles. 26 miles. Okay, now there's a, something called the Boston Marathon, run every year. Now, do you think that me and your dad could just go out today and run 26 miles? Have to work our way up to it, right? Maybe run a mile first, or maybe half a mile. And then uh, two mile, after a week of doing a mile, do two miles. And it could take all a year to tramp 26 miles. That's a long distance. But as as we endure through this training, we endure through it, we're going to run this 26 miles and make it until the end. That's the whole point of uh, this testing and trying and training of your faith so that you can make it until the end, because God wants you to be with Him for all eternity. But if you don't endure to the end, you will not be with Him for all of eternity. And it says in verse 4, this is a really good verse, I like it, and it says, It uh, But let patience, or endurance, or perseverance, have its perfect work. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I want to ask people who who don't believe in perfection what they make of this verse. They really have to twist and distort this verse to make something out of what what it doesn't really say. But let endurance or perseverance have its perfect work. It's complete result. That's what perfect work means. Complete result. And every time you endure through that temptation, you get successful in a temptation or a trial. You're overcoming that. And I'll tell you this, Joe, let me just go back to the lying example for, one, for a second. If you don't submit to lying one time, guess what? Next time it becomes easier not to submit to temptation. You don't submit to it. And then it becomes natural to you to always tell the truth. Lying won't even be a temptation for you any longer. Because you've persevered. And guess what? Now you've become complete in that work. Now you'll never submit to lying again because you've become complete in that work. You've endured through temptation and trials in that situation and you won't submit to it ever, ever again. You've become perfect in that area of your life. That's what God wants. He wants completeness, completeness so that you'd lack nothing. Now, let me just define perfection here. There's two different kinds of perfection in the Bible, in my mind. The first kind of perfection is something that you maintain. Okay? Perfection that you maintain. Okay, so you're maintaining this. And what this means is, as you live godly in Christ Jesus and you get tempted, you don't give into it. You're maintaining perfection in that area of your life. You're maintaining it, you're not giving into it. You're living holy. Now, if you do sin, of course you should repent. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 2, one. If, not when, if. So that's the first kind of, it's a maintaining perfection that as you grow in knowledge, as you grow in what you understand God desires of you, what God expects out of you, you're giving your life completely to him. You're obeying Him in every area of your life that you know intellectually to obey to. Now, what you don't know about, obviously, you can't be held accountable for that, according to the Word of God, too. I'm not going to get into too many references when it comes to that, but you you must maintain, this is perfection you maintain. So every time you submit to God and you're living holy, you're complete right now. You're complete. You're perfect. You're mature in that way. And then there's absolute perfection. Perfection. and this is only possible if you have all knowledge of what God requires of you now whether this is attainable in this life is disputable okay but this perfection right here where you're obeying the knowledge you have that what God expects of you is attainable and you should be there at all times if you slip out of that if you sin you get right back to it by repenting and uh, confessing your sins to God and forsaking Him once again. But this kind of perfection where He absolute, we don't have all knowledge. We're finite in our understanding. The Bible does say that when, uh, when He appears, we shall be as He is. Now, what that all entails, I really don't know. I guess we'll find out when we get there. But this absolute perfection, you must have complete knowledge of what God expects out of you. There's a possibility There's people who have reached that who have, have gotten so deep in God and his mind that they've come to that point. And I've, I've read about 40 biographies, and there's some men who I think may have gotten to that point. It's possible. But each, at, at, at every point that you're, you're tempted, you're tried, and you don't give in to it, so the, the genuineness of your faith has been determined, and you've been tested and tried, Now you're complete in that area right now. You're complete. You're as far as God wants you to go, as far as you can be at that point in time. And so God reveals more to you. And that's what we see in this, in James, I believe. We see this completeness, this maturity, this perfection that he talks about in James chapter 1 and verse 4, lacking nothing. So all that God requires of you, you're submitting to him. And then it goes on to say, and this is in regards to trials in verse 5 and temptation. If anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you lack wisdom on how to deal with a trial, or why this trial is coming, why this temptation is coming, or you need strength, you go to God for wisdom. And it says right here, liberally, then he'll give generously. He's not going to hold it back from you. God wants you to succeed through trials and temptations so is he going to hold back from you anything that you need to succeed of course not. if God commands you to do something he will give you the strength you need to fulfill what he's commanded you to do God's not some kind of wicked tyrant who will command of you demand of you something you can't fulfill or accomplish with his strength the way God works so he'll give generously and, and he won't give reproach to you but it means is he's not going to rebuke you for coming to him. Think like I said, oh, get away from you. You're bothering me. Don't bother me about these things. That's not the way my father is. He wants you to come to him. And he will give to you generously. And he will not rebuke you. He will not chastise you for coming to him. He wants you to come to him if you lack wisdom in some area of your life. He wants you to come to him. That's the way he is. But to receive this wisdom that God wants to give you, there's conditions. First, you must come to Him. That's the first thing. And know that He will not rebuke you if you come to Him the right way. It says, let him ask in faith. If you come to God and say, well, let me ask God for something, but, you know, I don't know if He's really going to give it to me or not. I don't know if He can, can really. And I'm not talking about asking for a million dollars. I'm not talking about, you know, asking for God to give you material possessions I'm, I'm talking about wisdom here through trials and tribulations. I'm not talking about coming to God for some ungodly thing that you want and desire that God doesn't want you to have. Okay? So when you come to him and ask in faith, and you know it's something God wants to give you, guess what? He'll give it to you. He will give it to you. But this is not talking about you coming to him and saying, Well, God, you know, I uh, was playing soccer today. hurting hurt my shin. Heal me, God. Does God have to heal you? Does God guarantee He's going to heal you of every sickness and disease? That's right. We have to keep that in mind now, because if we start believing that and it doesn't happen, we go down this road where we start disbelieving God. We start saying, well, maybe God isn't there. Or maybe I have something in my life that's wrong. We go down this, this road of despair. We be careful of that. You don't want to go down the road of despair and depression. So ask in faith. For he who doubts... It's like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now you all live in Hawaii. You saw lots of waves. Now let's say the water is the water wants to go a certain way. It's going a certain way. Can the wind stop it at any time? It sure can. It's strong. See so the the wave has this way it wants to go, but the wind's tossing it. And that's what it's like when someone doubts. Well, I kind of want to go back this way. Maybe I want, but I want to go back this way. And it's almost as if someone's looking this way and this way at the same time. Is that possible? That's impossible. That's what it's like if you want to come to God and you're going to doubt. Asking God for wisdom. Through this trial, through this temptation, but you're doubting. It's like you're looking both ways at the same time. That's not the way it works. And this reminds me of uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. It starts out in verse 11, of course, talking about a different people who God's given us, prophets and pastors and apostles and evangelists and teachers, for the quipping of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, it says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried out with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting. We shouldn't be tossed to and fro when it comes to the Bible. But too many people they trust in man don't trust in the Bible. Now, let me ask you this. Can you read the Bible and understand it for yourself? Yes. Do you have to have someone to teach you? Now, I'm coming from the Christian standpoint here, of course. Let's just turn to 1 John 2 real quick, and I'll answer the question for you from the Scriptures. 1 John 2, 27. John talking to Christians, of course. Says this, But the anointing which you have received from Him, anointing is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You see that from Jesus, abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Right? The same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now Jesus did tell his disciples before he left the other, he said, When the Spirit comes, he will bring all things to your remembrance and guide you into all truth. That's part of the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is to guide you in the truth, to teach you all things, to anoint you from God. And therefore, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you don't need anyone to teach you. You can read the Bible for yourself. Now, of course, according to Ephesians 4.11, God did give teachers. And He gave them for a reason. But teachers are profitable. When it comes down to it, if you're in a situation where you're left with just you and the Bible, and you're a Christian... You can succeed. You can understand what it says and believe it and obey it. You don't need someone to do that for you. And that's part of the problem when it comes to this being tossed to and from like waves of the sea. People are not trusting going to the Word of God for themselves and seeing what it says. They're trusting the words of men. Oftentimes I put my videos on YouTube. Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel. And people are always going quoting these authors, these men. I quote the Bible, they quote men. I quote the Bible, they quote men. Which is right, men or the Bible? Bible. Let God be true and every man be a liar, the Bible says. Okay? So let's not be tossed to and fro either by doubting, not believing God that he'll give us what we ask him for when it comes to wisdom and trials and temptations. And let's not be like waves of the sea when it comes to doctrine either. We need to have our doctrine down pat and know what the Bible says and believe it and obey it. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's look at some scriptures. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Some examples of double minded people. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 20. So Ahab, and Ahab was the king of Israel at this point in time, Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered him not a word. Hmm... Shows double-minded there, doesn't it? They're double-minded. They can't decide, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, or I'm going to follow Baal, the false god, the idolatrous god, the nobody, the demon. I'm going to follow sin, or I'm going to follow holiness. They can't decide. They're going back and forth. And this brings me to uh, Revelation chapter 3. It reminds me of another group of people called the Laodicean Church. The people in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3. In verse 15. This is Jesus speaking to them, the church of Laodicea. I know your works, that you're neither hot, cold, nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. If you're a double-minded person, God's going to vomit you out of his mouth if you stay that way. That's not God's will to do that to you. But God will do that to you. You have to decide which side you're going to be on here. Keep your finger in Revelation 3. We'll go back to that in a minute. But James also discusses double-mindedness. In verse 8 of James 4, says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. So double-minded, not saints. They're sinners, according to James. They're sinners. They need to cleanse their, their hands. They need to purify their hearts. They need to draw near to God and He will draw near to them. Stop being double-minded. Double-mindedness is sin. When it it comes to praying for wisdom or when it comes to anything in life. Double-mindedness is sin. Period. So we need to make sure we're not being double-minded. Then it goes on to say, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. But they're rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner oh, we will stop right there for a second. Now on cursory glance here, in verse nine and 10, we might think, well, James is putting down rich people and lifting up poverty. Now, is there any kind of intrinsic righteousness or goodness in being poor materially? Is, is being poor materially mean that you're holy? Is being rich material mean that you're wicked? That's not what it's saying here. Now keep in mind, we're talking about trials and tribulations now. Okay? Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Now, when you get things taken from you materially, things that you were used to having, let's just say, for example, this house was taken from you by the government. All you had were clothes, barely enough food to feed your family, and you had a shack now. That you're, you're, glor- you're, you're lowly now. You're a lot more lowly. What? I'm sorry, We went to live in the junk house. Oh, you went, yeah, you went to live in the junk house. That's right. You went to live in a junk house. Now you're lowly. A lot more lowly materially than you were before that happened. And he says to glory in your exaltation, or to glory in your, uh, or you could say be proud in your exaltation, because... When things are taking away from you materially, guess what happens? You begin to trust in God more. The be- I mean, it's, it's the hardest place to be, but the best place to be as a believer is to be trusting in God for all things. You know who has to do that more than anyone else, I think, as farmers. Think about how much farmers rely on God: Sun, water, dirt. Who gives all those things? Yeah. Well, the farmer doesn't have money to to water his crops by himself. Doesn't have the money for that kind of water. Doesn't have the money for fertilizer to make his crops grow better. He has to completely trust in God, not only to feed his family, but if he's going to sell the crops to someone else to make money, he's trusting in God for that as well. So the best place to be as a Christian, and I'll tell you this from experience, since October 2005, I was a pastor. I had a paycheck coming in every week, every month. Paycheck. I knew it was coming in, I knew how much I was making, I could budget everything out and I'd be good to go. I really didn't have as much trust in God when it came to that area because I knew what was coming in. I knew it was guaranteed every month. Then God called me to step out in faith and be an evangelist full time. Guess what? No more pastor salary. Now I have to completely trust in God to provide for me every single month. Got got some donations, people buy gospel track orders, people give me the custom tracks for them. All these different things God does to, in miraculous ways at times, ways that I don't even think about. I'll have a bill, let's do, and i was like, well, God, how am I going to pay for this? God will send money in. This is what God's called me to. And it's hard. It, it was really hard at first. Really hard. But God's strengthening my faith through this. And now it becomes easier each step of the way as I go along. And of course, God has to call you to such a place that I'm in right now. He doesn't want everyone to go out and do that, but... If God calls you to it, he'll provide for you, and he'll give you the strength to make it through. So let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. The first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first, the Bible says. Okay? But the rich in his humiliation. If they flower the field, he will pass away. Humiliation, the rich are humiliated in the eyes of of the world if their riches were to be taken away from them because in the eyes of the world rich people are, are thought upon pretty well look what that person's got, look at his car, look at it! look at his house, look at his money, look at his investments, look at his vacation home, look at his boat, look at his ATVs, look at look at his airplane, whatever it may be look at all that he's got but then it all gets taken away through trials and tribulations and temptations and persecution and now he becomes humiliated. Why? Because he's trusting in those things. He's trusting in those things. And the Bible makes it clear in Matthew chapter 6. Let's turn there for a second, Matthew chapter 6. Bible makes it clear what our attitude should be towards riches, worldly riches. This is in verse 19 of Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven when neither moth and rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They notice it doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Is your treasure in heaven or is it on earth? If your treasure is on earth, that's where your heart will be. On worldly things, on earthly things. If your treasure's in heaven, that's where your heart will be. On heavenly things, on eternal things, things that really matter. You know, a friend of mine once said, I've never once seen, as you go to a funeral, a U-Haul being pulled behind the hearse where the guy puts all his possessions in U-Haul and he gets buried with his possessions. I've never seen that happen. I've been to quite a few funerals. Never seen a U-Haul yet. Now in, in Egypt, a lot of times the pharaohs are buried with their gold. Buried with their because they think, well, in the next life I'm going to take it with me. That's see, now you can see where their mind, where their treasure is. Where's their treasure if they're burying them their gold with them? The treasure's on earth. So where's their heart? It's on earth. It's a sure sign of where your heart is. And then in verse 24, this verse makes it as clear as clear it can be. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon just means earthly riches. Some translations will say money, uh, but that's not exactly true. It just means earthly riches. I mean, I could treasure this chair. Is this chair money? No. It's earthly riches, though. That's what mammon is. And then one more scripture. Let's turn to 1 Timothy. Chapter six and verse ten. Actually let's start in verse nine. No, let's start in verse let's start in verse seven. All right. First Timothy six. 7. For we, were, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Or as Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So, what should we be content with? Food and clothing. If we have that, we should be content. Then in verse 9, for those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and in many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, let me just clarify something here. In the King J- New King James Version, in verse 10, it says, all kinds of evil. Kinds of is not in the Greek. So really it read, for love of money is the root of all evil. But the problem here, once again, is... The Greek word doesn't mean just money. It means earthly riches. And the love of earthly riches is the root of all evil. You love the world, you're going to hate God. You're going to love the one, despise the other, be loyal to the one, and despise the other, according to Jesus. Okay, so we have this issue, but it says in verse 11, here's the exhortation that Paul gives people. But you, O man of God, flee these things, and pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life. That's what God expects you to do. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter three. I thought you'd go back there. I want to show you how God views people who trust in their earthly riches and depend upon those and think they're OK. And They don't need to trust in God for those things. Verse 17, Revelation 3. Because you say, "I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing," and do not know, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So we have the Laodicean church think, so I'm, I'm okay. I got this. I got this. I don't, I don't need anything. That's a bad place to be in. To think I don't need God. I'm doing just fine by myself. It's a bad place to be in. That's what a lot of rich people, people who have lots of material possessions, they fall into these kind of things. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is, or it's easier for a, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, can a camel go through an eye of a needle? Impossible. That's impossible. And that's why, that's why Peter said after that, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? He said, with God, all things are possible. Yeah, so the rich man must give up his covetousness, his greediness. And if he doesn't, he may be humiliated through trials and tribulations and temptations. See, if someone has lots of material possessions, it doesn't mean they're ungodly or evil. But if they're not putting their hope or trust in those things, they're putting their hope and trust in God, and they're serving and following Him, and those things are taken away from them, is it really going to bother them? No. They won't be humiliated. They won't care. Because they know they'll just test their faith and purify their faith, and they'll draw closer to God through those things. One more verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. Basically, saying the same thing James says here. All flesh is as grass. All the glory of man is the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and this flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is what someone, as the the flowers, you know, every season you see the flowers go away and they come back as long as they're perennials anyway. If they're annuals, they go away. They don't come back at all. You see the leaves go away, they come back. You see the grass wither away, and it comes back. That's what it's like for a rich man who trusts in his riches. He just fades away. He's got no foundation to stay strong in the Lord. The Word of God, though, endures forever. That's why you trust in the Word of God. You follow the Word of God. You obey the Word of God. Okay, so just to kind of recap here. We're talking about trials or temptations. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will receive trials, persecution, and tribulation in this world. God wants to test to determine determine the genuineness of your faith to produce perseverance and endurance, because that's what you need to be perfect and obey until the end. If you lack wisdom, God will give to you generously. He will not chastise you when you come to Him and ask Him. But you must come in faith. You must come in faith. And for those who, have, who lack possession because of persecution or trials or relations, they need to rejoice in what's happened to them. Rejoice because they're, they're being tested and tried even more and drawn closer to God. And what would you rather have? Would you rather be poor and, and worldly riches and be close to God as you possibly can be because God's allowed these tribulations and temptations to come to you? Would you rather be rich and be comfortable and, and kind of just play around with God? Which one would you rather have? Or have the first one. That's what James is talking about here. He's encouraging the Jews, the Jewish believers who are scattered abroad to continue in the faith. Obviously in the Gentile nations, which are pagan nations, they're not received very well. But he wants to encourage them.